Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would open up to us your word. Teach us old truths in new ways. Amen. One of the most surprising and extraordinary statements St. Paul ever made is that which we find in our epistle reading this morning. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, you probably didn't hear it as particularly astounding this morning. Many of us here today have heard that a thousand times. We know that the cross of Christ is central to our Christian faith. The symbol of the cross is so familiar to us. This very church building is laid out and and built in the shape of a cross. We carry a cross in our procession. We have a cross at the front of the nave. But I wonder whether sometimes, subconsciously perhaps, we actually rewrite that great statement of St. Paul. I think I have. I think instead of the cross, I've really wanted to proclaim the resurrection. After all, isn't it the resurrection that is full of power and proof and brings us hope for the future? Isn't the heart of Christianity Christ and him resurrected, not Christ and him crucified? Well, not according to St. Paul. So this morning, I want us to take a closer look at this profound teaching. And while I would unequivocally affirm that without the resurrection, the crucifixion would indeed be stripped of its power and meaning, nevertheless, it is the cross that Paul was determined to preach. You know, I think our first problem in not grasping what Paul is saying is that we simply don't hear these words as being particularly shocking, as they surely were to the first hearers. For starters, we read this verse about Jesus Christ, and we just hear his name. But Christ is not so much a name as it is a title with very specific meaning. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. To speak of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, is to describe him as the one for whom all Israel had been waiting The Christ was the one who would save them from their oppressors. The Messiah would set the people free. He would be their savior, their hope, their deliverer, the one who would bring victory. So the idea of the Messiah, the Christ, being crucified is a preposterous notion. And frankly, a scandal and an utter embarrassment What kind of a hero gets the electric chair and is executed as a common criminal? By definition, at least until Jesus came to fulfill their understanding of that definition, the Christ was to be a victor, not a victim. No wonder Paul says he proclaimed this message in fear and trembling. This is not what they wanted to hear. So our first problem in grasping the enormity of what Paul is preaching is with our understanding of what it means to call Jesus the Christ. Our second difficulty is that we have no real visceral connection to a cross. You know, for us, the cross is almost certainly the most universal symbol in the whole world. We know what a cross means. A cross is the Christian's logo. 
or it may signify a church or a graveyard or at the very least something religious. And crosses come in wood, silver, or gold. They come plain or ornate. They may be made out of simple nails or wonderful diamonds. And they can be worn as ear studs or necklaces. And sadly, crosses may mean absolutely nothing at all to many who wear them. But a cross in Roman times were a far cry from being a symbol of religious faith or of God's power and a million miles from being a piece of jewelry, a cross was a symbol of Rome's power. A cross showed that imperial Rome held power over life and death for all who stood in its way. And yet, somehow, Paul is telling us the tortured, suffering crucified Messiah is the key to understanding all mystery of life and death. Paul was obsessed with the cross. Actually, so was Jesus. Jesus constantly talked about it and pointed towards the fact that he would have to suffer. He spoke of his death as being the hour for which he had come into the world. He gave instructions for his own memorial service, telling his disciples to eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of him. Late 19th century bishop, uh, former bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, once said this, if you have not yet found out that Christ crucified is the foundation of the whole volume, you have read your Bible hitherto to very little profit. Your religion is a heaven without a sun, an arch without a keystone, a compass without a needle, a clock without a spring or weights, a lamp without oil. Beware, I say again, of a religion without the cross. But why? Why is the cross so important, so central? Why did Paul boast about it, glory in it, and resolve to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified? You know, there are many different images and analogies that we can use to try and explain and unpack this. I'm actually not going to do that this morning. Come to the Alpha course on Friday if you want to hear me do that. But this morning, I do want to stress that Jesus' very identity is that of one who was crucified. The cross is not cancelled out by the resurrection. As David reminded us last week, the risen Savior still carries the marks of the nails in his handprints. Jesus is not a Teflon Savior. He is the wounded, crucified Savior. John Stott said this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it. The cross also shows us that God is a just and a holy God who cannot just turn a blind eye to sin and selfishness, to violence and oppression. Indeed, such a God would be neither holy nor loving. Real forgiveness for real sin is always very, very costly. Sometimes people ask, well, but why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God just forgive us? No one just 
forgives. Forgiveness is always costly. God determined that sin and selfishness cannot go unpunished, unrecognized, and just be forgiven as if sin did not matter. No, someone had to pay the price for sin. And what we are preaching when we preach Christ and him crucified is that God himself paid that price in order that we can be forgiven. Why? Because he loves us. John Stott again writes this, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. Christianity is not a lifestyle choice, a self-help scheme. And first and foremost, the cross marks God's intervention to destroy the most powerful thing that everyone faces. Namely, their own mortality and alienation from God and from one another. The cross stands at the pivotal point in history between one age and the next. The cross is all about what God has done once for all. And while this is wonderful, lofty, glorious stuff, it also marks the shocking seriousness of the human condition. A condition that is so morally bankrupt and depraved that it took such a radical and shocking solution to deal with its consequences. The cross also serves as a reminder to us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. A couple of weeks ago, we read from the first chapter of this letter uh, of 1 Corinthians, which spoke of the contrast between human wisdom and the wisdom of God. True wisdom must be grounded on the narrative of the cross. Now, our context is not the same as the Corinthian context, and yet there is, is there not, a tendency for folks like us, who by and large are highly educated, For us to become arrogant, trusting in our own credentials and our own learning, rather than in the seeming foolishness of the cross. The meaning of true wisdom is found in Christ crucified. The cross gives us a very different frame of reference for understanding life. In the choices that we make, Where does the cross fit in? You know, I think sometimes we ask the wrong questions in life. And the story of the cross and the way of Jesus is the narrative that needs to inform all our stories and all our choices. And this is really quite countercultural. As you well know, we live in a rights-based society. And yet Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow him. What does that look like for you at school, at work, at home? I was reading a blog entry a friend had posted on his Facebook page the other week, and it was entitled Coming Out Christian. And it was an article about how faithful and celibate homosexual people are transforming some of our churches. Blogger Eve Tushnet wrote this. 
We're often ashamed to admit that we suffer. It's humiliating and it makes us feel like we're not good enough Christians. This is bizarre, since there are very few aspects of Jesus' own internal life that we know as much about as his suffering. Jesus, unmarried, marginalized, misunderstood, a son and a friend, but not a father or spouse, is the preeminent model for gay Christians. In this, as in so many things, wrote the gay blogger, we are just like everybody else. And it struck me that that is a good word for all of us, regardless of our sexual identity. Jesus is, of course, the preeminent model for all of us. Jesus, in his life and death, modeled the way of the cross. You know, for any person to live a faithful, celibate life is hard. Few people, it seems, are willing to do that. It takes courage, commitment, self-denial. For lots of single Christians, such obedience to God's word is very challenging. But it's the way of the cross. Not the way of my rights, my wants, my desires on my terms. Now, of course, there are many and varied illustrations I could give of what it means to live this way of the cross. I want to give you one other. I think one person who embodied that for many of us was Karis Cornfield, who died on Wednesday morning, and whose 30 years of life we will be celebrating this coming Saturday. From a distance, you could perhaps look at her life and see only sickness and suffering following lifelong illness and numerous surgeries and transplants. Yet to those of us who knew her, what we saw and experienced was a life that was marked by joy in the midst of suffering, hope in the midst of despair, and amazing strength in the midst of great weakness. Her life touched literally thousands of people through her suffering. Caris lived and died the way of the cross. But I need to say something else, because I think one of the things about Christ and him crucified that I think a lot of people have struggled with is how something that happened so long ago can really have anything to do with us now. And one such person who struggled with this before he became a Christian was C.S. Lewis, I'm just reading uh, Alistair McGrath's new biography of Lewis, which I commend to you. It's, it's a good read. And in it, he writes of how, in a letter to a friend, Lewis explained that his difficulty had been that he could not see how the life and death of someone else, whoever he was, 2,000 years ago, could help us here and now. He could admit that Christ might provide us with a good example, but that was about as far as it went. Lewis realized that the New Testament took a very different view using terms such as propitiation and sacrifice to refer to the true meaning of the event. But these expressions, Lewis declared, seemed to him to be either silly or shocking. But it was in one of his many late-night conversations with his good friend J.R. Tolkien, author, of course, of Lord of the Rings, that the lights started to come on for Lewis. McGrath writes, Tolkien helped Lewis to realize that the problem 
lay not in Lewis's rational failure to understand the theory, but in his imaginative failure to grasp its significance. The issue was not primarily about truth, but about meaning. When engaging Christian narrative, Lewis was limiting himself to reason when he ought to be opening himself up to the deepest intuitions of his imagination. Now, don't panic. I'm not trading truth for imagination. You don't need to call the bishop. <laughs> but I want you to wrestle with this because I think it's important. And, and Lewis, writing to his friend later, said this, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with the tremendous difference that it really happened. And McGrath helpfully reminds us, and I pass on to you, myth is not being used here as if it were a fairy tale. It's used in its more technical literary sense. For Tolkien, a myth is a story that conveys fundamental things. In other words, that tries to tell us about the deeper structure of things. Christ and him crucified is at the heart of and provides the key to understanding the Christian story. And so for us, we are called to live in the light of Christ and him crucified. We're invited to take up our cross, to live by dying to ourselves as we follow Jesus. We're called to live a crucified life, not in exactly the same way as Jesus, but nevertheless following in his footsteps. Now, I've been painting with a fairly broad brush this morning, but as I was reading and preparing to preach this week, I was struck with how Christ and him crucified is, amongst other things, a call for us to take a fresh look at the narrative of our lives. The narrative of our culture is filled with self-advancement, the promise of freedoms and choices, rights and riches. The narrative of Christ and him crucified is altogether different. It's a narrative that confronts the powers of this world with the power of the cross. It may look like weakness and failure, but is in fact a breaking in of God's kingdom, a grand reversal of death and hopelessness, and stands as the pinnacle of an epic true story. To any here this morning who do not believe or who are not sure about this, ask God, ask God the Holy Spirit to reveal more of his mysteries to you. And if you've got more questions about why Jesus died, come to the Alpha Course on Friday. I'm going to be speaking more about this uh, more fully as time allows. And to those of you who do believe, let this profound mystery touch you afresh as you contemplate Christ and him crucified. And as today you come forward and kneel at the rail and take and eat Jesus' body and drink his blood this morning. May we, like St. Paul, like C.S. Lewis, like Caris Cornfield, Proclaim the mystery of God in our lives, not with lofty words of wisdom, but in weakness 
that demonstrates the Spirit's power. Thanks be to God for sending Jesus to die on a cross for us.